preach this morning. Those of you who were here last Sunday uh, know that I did this. I'm uh, having a little sciatica problem. And if any of you have ever had sciatica problem, you know what that feels like, kind of from the back down into the leg. Uh, I'm happy to say it's better than last week. Um, and I didn't play basketball this week. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm working it out. Maybe next week I'll be able to stand. I hope so. But uh, I want to thank, uh, uh, thank you for your prayers, those who've been praying for me and a couple people who are helping me actively. I want to thank uh, Dr. Perry Ng and Chuck Graybill, my own personal physical therapist. And uh, we're going to get there. I know we're going to get there. I'm old, but I'm not that old. And I still have a lot of mileage left in me. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 25 through 35. Open your Bibles and read along or listen as we read God's word. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. May God bless to our understanding the reading of this is holy word. Amen. I have always wanted to read a novel by the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. If you know anything about his novels, they're big. I have tried. Uh, About 18 years ago, I tried to read the Brothers Karamazov, but... At that time, I was the father of, at that time, two young children, and reading did not come easy. There wasn't a lot of time for it. So I put it down, I never made it through, and I've never picked it back up. So I have only been told about the scene in the Brothers Karamazov where Ivan, a staunch atheist, tells his devout Christian brother, Alyosha, of a dream that he has proving that Christ is totally irrelevant to life. 
In this dream, the atheist brother relays to his believing brother how the devil appears in this dream as the grand inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition from the Middle Ages. And Jesus comes to Spain and he is confronted by the inquisitor who tells Jesus that it is precisely in the events of John chapter 6 where Jesus blew it, totally messed up his whole life and mission. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few barley loaves and some fish. Uh, It's a miracle, the third sign of the seven signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John, and the only miracle that all four Gospel writers record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every one of them give us the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And it says in John 6 that when the now satisfied people see what Jesus has done and he's fed them, they declare this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And they want to take him by force and make Jesus their earthly king. But Jesus withdraws by himself, escaping their plans for earthly power and authority that they have for him. Well, this, says the inquisitor in the dream, in Ivan's dream, this is where Jesus went wrong. The Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus that the people would have never abandoned him as their king as long as he continued to give them bread. I mean, after all, he has power to change even stones into bread. And people need bread more than anything else in life. And the Inquisitor accuses Jesus of totally misunderstanding his purpose and the situation of the world and of all people. And he says this to Jesus. You made man free when he wanted to be happy. You know, feeding 5,000 people certainly made a lot of people happy. And it made Jesus wildly popular. But Jesus did not come to make people happy or to be popular. In hiding so as not to be made an earthly king, He kind of confuses the people. Why would he do this? Why wouldn't he want to be king? Well, Jesus is not dependent on the wants, on the desires, on the needs of others. Nor does he need to secure authority or power for himself. Jesus doesn't need to be made a king. He already is a king. It's interesting that John chapter 6 is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. By the end of the chapter, it says that many of his disciples turned back and they no longer went about with him. They're abandoning Jesus. Because his teaching about the bread of life and that people need to, as he says, eat his flesh and drink his blood turns a lot of people off. We're told that some thought his words were too hard. Jesus becomes unpopular with the multitudes and he also is moving closer to his arrest, to his trial, and to his crucifixion. Things are getting tough. But how many people come to Jesus to be made happy, but not to be made free? After feeding the 5,000, after hiding himself, Jesus comes to his disciples by boat, walking on the water, and this is how he gets to the other side of the lake. When the crowds realize that neither Jesus nor his disciples are anymore on that side of the lake, they get into boats in a wild search for Jesus, and they go across and they find him on the other side. And they ask Jesus, well, how long have you been here? Jesus ignores the practicalities of how he got there, but he says this, 
Truly, truly, I tell you. You know, Jesus begins many statements in John's gospel this way. Literally, he, it's, it reads, amen, amen, I say to you. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And it raises the question, doesn't it? Why do we look for Jesus? Why do we search for him? What do we really want from him? When Jesus no longer satisfies our expectations, will we still follow him? Does our faith become so one-sided when we're no longer willing to submit to Jesus and we're no longer willing to be taught and molded by him as he knows best? Kind of have that one-sided faith. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you keep feeding me, doing what I want, fulfilling what I believe I need. As long as it's feeling good, I'm in. Sometimes people leave one church for another or they grow cold in their walk with Christ or they just no longer follow because they're searching for the experience more than the substance. They want fulfillment more than faithfulness. Jesus recognizes that the multitude searching for him do so because they got a good meal and they're happy. Augustine wrote, how many people are there who seek Jesus only to gain some temporary benefit? Jesus is scarcely ever sought for Jesus' sake. Jesus gives more. He gives much more than just temporary uh, benefit. Yes, Jesus can give temporary blessing. He can give temporary filling. But he points the crowds beyond the temporary food that they just ate to something eternal. And he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And the people want to know, well, what must we do to perform the works of God? It's interesting, the people speak of works in the plural. When Jesus answers their question, he speaks of work in the singular, as if there is just one thing to do. And Jesus responds that the one work of God is to believe in him whom God has sent. That's it. That work is simple trust and belief in who Jesus is and what he has done. Not some huge ladder that we have to climb. Not some long list of rules that we have to follow. Jesus says getting a right relationship with God is simply believing and trusting that God gives us this through Jesus. And it is the one fundamental foundational thing we must do. It is square one of the Christian life. Anything else that comes only follows after we've got that peace in place. But here we hit a paradox of the Christian life. On the one hand, we are supposed to believe in Christ. I'm supposed to believe in Christ. You're supposed to believe in Christ. But that belief does not come by our own efforts. It is a gift of God. It comes, we're told, by grace. Consider one of the things that John has already told us in his gospel back in chapter 1 when he wrote, To all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power. God gave power to become children of God who were born, 
not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, or of the will of any person, but born of God. We are born of God when we receive and when we believe in Christ Jesus. But God gives us the power. He gives us the rights for this to happen. It isn't our will, it says, that makes us a son or a daughter. Later in chapter 6, Jesus will say, No one can come to me unless they are drawn by the Father to me. Well, which is it? Do I choose Christ? Or by his grace, does he draw me into this relationship? You know, when Peter makes his great confession to Jesus in one of the other Gospels, that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, Jesus immediately tells him, he says, Blessed are you, Peter, for saying this, for knowing this. But flesh and blood, in other words, your own human resources, did not reveal this to you. Rather, it was my Father in heaven who revealed this to you. My Father is the one who opened your eyes to this. Paradox. Paul wrote, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And he goes on to say, For he is what we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Uh, we're saved by grace into a life of good works. We are not saved by works into a life of grace. And perhaps the scripture that illustrates this paradox the best is when Paul writes in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he adds, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, on the one hand, we have work to do. But it is God who is at work in me. He's at work in you. And it is God who enables us to do what he wants us to do. On the one hand, we have to trust. On the other hand, that trust is a work of God in us. We have to believe that Jesus is the one sent from God and trustfully relax in that. That's step one. Anything else God has us do comes out of that relationship. I think we can sometimes get so worked up about our belief in God, wondering if we have the belief or, or not. Uh, we come to church maybe out of guilt, saying, well, if I, I don't come, I, I, that shows I don't believe, and we have to be here to appease God, or we feel we have to do one, two, three to have a relationship to God or for Him to relate to us, or we have to have something extra, maybe some extra Holy Spirit or some extra empowerment or some extra baptism. Maybe we're anxious that we don't really believe enough. It is so hard for us to believe that simple belief in Jesus is enough. We, and I include myself in this struggle, we need to relax in what God has done in sending his son. I wonder sometimes if we make it all a little too complicated. You know, there are no adjectives, there are no adverbs in front of the word belief in John's gospel. There's never, you never read, for example, well, you have to have super belief. Or you have to have strong belief. Or you have to have fervent belief. In John's gospel, we never find an adjective or an adverb describing belief. It is simply belief. Trust. 
an emphasis more on Christ than on what we bring and on what we do. And sometimes that belief we have is strong. And sometimes it isn't, is it? And sometimes that belief we have is partially unbelief too, isn't it? But it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And that is the good news of the gospel, and that is what makes us free. Dale Bruner, in his new commentary on the Gospel of John, says this. This is the beginning of the great surprise of the Christian gospel. That the right relationship with God, for which we were created, is not the fruit of several good things we do, but it is the gift of the one main thing God does for us and in us and then are giving this trust back in turn to his gifted son. We need to allow what God has done for us to happen to us. And it probably takes more than a lifetime of living to discover how that happens. It's a paradox that on the one hand, the sovereign grace of God does it all for us and yet we are responsible for our trust and belief. And you know what? Both are found in the Bible. It is a paradox, just as it is a paradox that Jesus is fully God, yet fully man, 100% and 100%. And these are not the only paradoxes in the life of faith. And you know what? Good theology is filled with such paradoxes. So don't worry about it. The crowds ask Jesus, for a sign if they're going to believe in Jesus. As if feeding 5,000 with a few loaves and fish wasn't enough. What more do you want? And they compare Jesus to Moses. And they remember, well, you know, Moses provided several thousand people bread for 40 years. Jesus, you've only done 5,000 in one afternoon. You know, Moses brought manna and it came from heaven. We saw where you got the, the loaves and the fish. It came from that little boy. And Moses brought manna. It was magnificent. You're just giving us poor barley loaves. The people wanted Jesus to prove himself to be greater than Moses. Jewish thought believed that the manna that had stopped falling once the Israelites had entered the promised land would again fall in the age of the Messiah. A late Jewish writing says this, the treasury of manna will come down again from on high and they will eat of it in those years. Well, Jesus tells them, you know, it wasn't Moses who gave Israel that bread from heaven. It was my father who was the source, and he's the source of the feeding of the thousands. And while my father gave you manna then, he is giving you right now something greater that is in your presence. Manna can't compare with what the father is giving you right now. You don't need another miracle. You need to believe in who I am and who it is that is standing before you. And furthermore, the bread in the days of Moses was only for the little nation of Israel. The bread that God now offers is for the entire world. Moses was in the past, and that was one thing. But now the Father is giving bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And that verb giving suggests something continually happening. God is continually giving bread to the world through Jesus. Well, the crowds become enticed with this bread that Jesus is talking to them about. And they say, Lord, give us this bread always. 
Isn't that the right prayer to pray? Lord, give us this bread always. Don't we want bread that will give us life where we will never hunger, where we will never die? Jesus, we want to live. Please keep giving us this bread because we are afflicted with dissatisfaction. We are bored. We are, we are anxious. We have so, much other to, oh, so many other things to care about. And we are searching for true rest and true peace and life. So would you give us this bread? Jesus, of course, wasn't speaking of physical bread, but of something deeper. And he responds to them with these words. I am the bread of life. The person who comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is just not bread. He is the bread. He does not just have some life, but he has the life. Jesus is claiming in his own person to be that for which all human beings long. We need Jesus more than we need our next meal. Jesus shows how this happens in two ways. Two words I want to point out to you. Who comes and whoever believes. Comes and believes. First, all we do is come to him. That's all he asks. Come to me. He has done the work. He has paved the way for us to come. We come to Jesus. We come to Jesus whenever we're in the midst of his people worshiping him. Right now, we've come to Jesus. Whenever we hear the word, whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus whenever we, on our own, open the Bible and read it, no matter how much or how little. Or when we have a time of personal prayer or family prayer. We come to Jesus whenever we get together with a small group of other Christians and and we think about Jesus and talk about our faith and talk about him and learn about him and pray together. We come to Jesus whenever we do the smallest act of obedience in his name. Now, Jesus doesn't give any particulars how to come to him after he says this. We discover the ways as we follow him and as we submit to him, he will teach us, each one of us, in our own way, in our own journeys of faith. But the second way that we come to the bread of life and we receive the bread of life is simply by believing. Whoever believes. We show our trust and we show our belief in someone when we come to them. I showed my belief and my trust in my doctor this week when I went to her because I was having this pain in my back. It was all very simple to come to her. I was showing my trust. Again, John never attaches the word like deeply or completely or utterly to belief. Sometimes our belief isn't so deep. Sometimes our belief is a little incomplete, isn't it? Sometimes our belief isn't absolute. I know mine is like that sometimes. We're working it out with fear and trembling, like Paul said, aren't we? It's a lifetime process. We are just merely invited to come to Jesus. The bread of life is free. I don't think we can hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, without thinking about communion and what we do 
every time we come to the Lord's table. John does not tell us about Jesus in that upper room with the disciples when he broke bread and when he poured the cup and that first communion. He doesn't tell us anything in his gospel. John chapter 6 is John's communion story. The feeding of the thousand and Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life. Now, there are, there have been many views on how the bread is Jesus' body when we take communion. Jesus said, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And people have understood that in many, many different ways. But despite arguments, despite disagreements over what Jesus meant when he said to eat his flesh, I think there are at least three meanings that any person in any Christian tradition can agree upon. First, Jesus spoke of the bread as his flesh. And the broken bread certainly makes us think of his broken body given for us on the cross. Second, bread is something that everybody needs. We all need it for nourishment. We all need it for life. Jesus is absolutely essential for life and for our spiritual nourishment. He said that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and unless you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Um, We have to internalize him just like We eat anything else. It has to get inside of us. And that kind of leads to the third thing. Jesus said, unless um, Jesus said, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, they abide in me. I abide in them. They live in me. I live in them. The Lord's table in some way connects us to Christ and helps bond us in that relationship to him. It happens mysteriously. Certainly spiritually, maybe more physically than we even understand, and certainly by faith in what he says. Jesus doesn't invite us to eat the flesh and drink his blood based on our understanding. And that's a good thing, because there's a lot of this I don't understand. I don't understand how Jesus' body can be here. But he tells me that I come by faith. We come by simple faith, believing Jesus, and that this is the way he chooses to give himself to us, one of the ways. And I wonder when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and just come and, and just take the bread of life, I wonder if he was not thinking of the words of Isaiah, who said in his own sermons, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The great message of John's gospel is that God came down in Jesus, sending him from living in eternity with the Father sending him as a real, in-the-flesh human being to make salvation and to make a relationship with God as accessible as possible for us. He made his presence as near as possible and his nourishment as accessible as possible so that we might live as authentically as possible, which is living life, real life, in him. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood 
have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. His invitation is to come and believe. We are all he wants. He is all we need. We don't have to work for it or earn it. Just come. Just trust in him. That's all. That is enough. And that's the gospel. Amen.